Today, we are going to talk about the wise mercy of God. And we're not going to, I'm not going to go through a text, um, and exposit a text today. But we are going to be looking um, at a big, broad story today, the story of Joseph. And our, the text I would like to read to you as we begin this is, well, the, the text will be Genesis 37, kind of, but the text I want to read to you is Genesis 50. Genesis 50, verse 20, the beginning of that verse says this, But as for you, this is Joseph talking to his brothers, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. Amen. My goal for this sermon uh, this morning is number one, that we would gain a greater understanding of God's sovereignty, a greater understanding of God's sovereignty and how he works in the lives of his people. And then number two, that this revelation of God would help us to understand our own lives better. That's my prayer. And so I want you to remember that the purpose of all scripture, all scripture is to reveal Christ to us. And it is to point us to the gospel of grace. It should never point us to ourselves. It points us to Christ, through which we see ourselves. And so instead of looking at Joseph today, and looking at the story of Joseph, we want to look with Joseph to Christ. We're going to look at his story. We're going to look at his circumstances. But we want to look with him to Christ. And we want to see, instead of simply seeing this story, instead of simply seeing a crazy drama play out, we want to see a crazy drama play out that is testifying to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, let's pray. Our Father, would you grant us eyes to see you for who you really are this morning? Would you help us to intimately know you as sovereign and good? And would you please help us to know the ways that you work in our lives and in our stories and in your world? As we open up the story of Joseph, Would you open up our hearts? Would you you remove the attitudes, the high thoughts, the emotional blockades that we have erected that attempt to reduce you, God, down to a safe and sterile God of our own imagination? Be known to us today for who you really are. Reveal to us today that your providence in our lives comes to us through the good and evil, the sweet and the bitter. 
I pray that you would guide my mouth sovereignly. My words, guide them. Let them be truth for the edification of your body. Let every vain word fall by the wayside. And would you guard the hearing of these people that they would hear with expectant ears and expectant hearts and minds. Let every word of mine fall that your word may prevail. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Genesis 37 is where the story of Joseph begins. It's the beginning of Joseph's long, dramatic story. And so, um, we're not gonna, I'm not going to just read Genesis 37. I might read that. But I think what I'll do instead is actually just kind of give you a synopsis of the whole story of Joseph. Just front to back. I don't want to take anything for granted here. And it's such an amazing story if you already know it. Well, you won't, you won't find any chore to hear it again, will you? Um, so the story of Joseph, we have Jacob, Joseph's father. Jacob has 12 sons, but of all of his 12 sons, he loves Joseph the most. And because Joseph is his father's favorite, Jacob makes him a special robe of many colors or something. He makes him a special robe that signifies his favor and his authority. And so this doesn't sit well with Joseph's older brothers. And so they hate him. They hate him. And then God gives Joseph two dreams that uh, these dreams mean that his brothers and his family will bow down to him. And Joseph and his brothers already have a strained relationship. And so these dreams make his brothers hate him even more. One day, Joseph, who is about 17 years old at this time, he goes out to check on his brothers in the fields. And they see him coming from afar, this colorful brother, favored brother. They see him coming to check on them. And as they see him coming, they conspire to kill him and to throw him into a pit. But Joseph, Joseph's oldest brother, Reuben, intervenes. And he says, we are not going to kill Joseph. But they strip off his prized robe, and they throw him down into a pit. And then another one of Joseph's brothers, Judah, intervenes again. And he suggests that instead of killing him, they at least get something out of it and they sell him to Ishmaelites who are going down to Egypt. So Joseph is then sold to a man named Potiphar who is an officer of Pharaoh. And the Bible tells us that God is with Joseph and Joseph and God caused all that Joseph did to succeed. 
as it happened, Potiphar's wife becomes smitten with Joseph. And day after day, she begs him to sleep with him. Her, sorry. Day after day, she asks him, come, lie with me. And day after day, Joseph righteously refuses. He righteously refuses to sin against God. He not only is wise enough to say, no, thank you. He is righteous. And he says, I will not sin against God. One day when no one else is around, she catches him by the garment and she says, lie with me. But Joseph does not even wait for her to let go of him. And he flees from the house, leaving his garment in his hand. This naturally makes Potiphar's wife um, very angry. And so the Egyptian nobles accuse this Hebrew slave of trying to rape her. That's That's the story she tells. Hashtag me too. Right? As soon as Potiphar hears his wife's slanderous story against Joseph, but also he hears the slanderous story against himself, because the Potiphar's wife says to the men of the house, of her house, that uh, in an effort to turn them against Potiphar and to make them believe the, the lie, uh, she says, Potiphar has brought this Hebrew in to mock us. And so Potiphar hears this slanderous tale and he burns with anger. But he has to save face and so he puts Joseph into prison, um, into the prison where the king's prisoners are. But through the whole story and even now, God has not abandoned Joseph. God gave Joseph favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison and he puts Joseph in charge of all the prisoners. And then... Two unlikely men just so happened to become prisoners with Joseph, the king's cupbearer and the king's baker. The king's cupbearer and the king's baker. One night, they just so happened to have dreams. And remember, Joseph is a dreamer himself. And so these dreams trouble the cupbearer and they trouble the baker, such that Joseph notices. And he asked them, why you are downcast, cupbearer, baker? And they tell Joseph their dreams, and Joseph gives them the interpretation, which was good news for the cupbearer and bad news for the baker. And in three days, each man's dream would come to pass the baker would have his head chopped off and the cupbearer would be restored to his former position with Pharaoh. So when Joseph gave the cupbearer his favorable interpretation, Joseph knew that cupbearer would be restored to his position. And so he says, don't forget me. When you go back before Pharaoh, don't forget me. Remember But when the cupbearer gets out and was restored, just just as Joseph told him, he forgets. 
He forgets the dreamer. He stays in prison. Joseph stays in prison. And we're not told exactly how long, but we know that Joseph is in in this prison for a minimum of two years. Very likely it was much longer. But at a minimum, it was two years. Sometime later, Pharaoh dreams dreams. And there's no one of his wise men, these pagan worshipers, there's no one in his council who, they, these, these Egyptians worship false gods. And so these wise, powerful seers, right? These wise and powerful, um, uh, what were they called? What are they called again? No, the guiders, you know. You know what I'm talking about, the guiders. They guide people through the dreams. None of those guys could figure it out. None of those guys, none of those Egyptians could tell Pharaoh what, his interp- what the interpretation of the dream was. And then the cupbearer remembers Joseph. Then he remembers Joseph. And Joseph is summoned to stand before Pharaoh. And he tells Pharaoh the interpretation of his dreams. And this is it. Seven years of plenty in Egypt will be swallowed up by seven years of famine, terrible famine. And so Pharaoh is so moved by what God is doing through the dream and through Joseph. He is so moved by the spirit of God in Joseph. And Joseph's God-given wisdom that Pharaoh sets Joseph over all the land of Egypt, second in command, answering only to Pharaoh himself. And he arranges a marriage. Pharaoh arranges a marriage between this Joseph in whom this is the spirit of God with the daughter of the Egyptian priest. You know why? Because Egypt is getting saved in all of the ways, more than just saved from the famine, Egypt is getting saved. In fact, we're told that Joseph has become like a father to Pharaoh. Perhaps this indicates that Pharaoh was younger. But we're told that Pharaoh puts Joseph in the second chariot. And they go before Joseph. Pharaoh and the men go before Joseph in the first chariot. Joseph is second, not first. And they go before Joseph and they cry, bow the knee, bow the knee. Joseph, being the wise master that he is, takes care during the first seven years to store up all the food in preparation for the famine. And then when the famine finally comes and and it is severe in Egypt and in all of the earth, so that all the countries come to Egypt and to Joseph to buy food. Joseph, Joseph's father, Jacob, and his family also have to go to Egypt to get food. They're not exempt from the famine in the promised land. 
And so Jacob sends his sons down to Egypt to buy food in order to survive. This is a little mini exodus picture. They go out empty and they come back full. This brings them directly before Joseph, who they do not recognize. And in true humility, they bow down to this prince of Egypt, not knowing that it was their brother Joseph, the dreamer of dreams. And eventually Joseph does reveal himself to his brothers who become terrified that Joseph will avenge himself for the violent way they treated him. Joseph's vengeance would have been just. And so they're, they're afraid but instead, Joseph forgives them. And, he, and, and they reconcile. And eventually, Joseph is reunited with his family, with his father in Egypt. Pharaoh brings Joseph's family into the land, gives them the best, and showers them with possessions. In fact, he tells them, don't worry about bringing your possessions. I'm going to give you possessions when you get to the land. They go out empty and they come back full. And so at the end of this story, we see that instead of punishing the brothers, Joseph saves them. Joseph saves them. Instead of bringing judgment upon Egypt, Joseph brings salvation. Instead of bringing judgment upon Egypt, His family, he brings salvation. Joseph could have seen that vision, that dream, and said, as a bitter young man who was chewed up by the darkness present in this world, can you imagine how easily it could have been for Joseph to just be bitter at the world, the injustice? And can you imagine a young man who says, you know what? Let it burn. Let it go. He hears the dreams and he says, hell is coming to the world. Death is coming to the world. And if Joseph would have given in to that bitterness, what could he have done? He could have said, let it go. Let it burn. Let it die. Me along with it. He could have been bitter at the Ishmaelites, the Egyptians, his family. And he could have said, let them all perish. But at the end of the story, that's not what we see. We see salvation, not condemnation. We see salvation come to the world, to Joseph's family. And so in Genesis 45, verse 8, Joseph says, So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now, last week we talked in James chapter 2 about faith and works. About this relationship, this mysterious relationship between the faith of Christ and our necessary obedience. Works. I mean, to the point where James says some crazy things like, you will not be justified apart from works. Not by faith alone, but by works. Crazy guy. 
And what he's showing us is this mysterious relationship of what it means for God to work in us. God gives us this grace to believe. And God gives us this grace to obey. Well, we see this playing out here. In this picture of the sovereignty of God and this picture of human responsibility. It is a paradox, but it is no contradiction. It doesn't mean that Joseph is in Egypt as no result of his brother's actions. He is in Egypt as a direct result of his brother's actions. We do not need to deny that. And he is in Egypt because this was God, the sovereign, who sent him here. In fact, he says, it was not you who sent me here, but God. It was his brothers who sold him to Ishmaelites that carried Joseph to Egypt. They carried Joseph to Egypt. It was his brothers who drug him out of that pit, bound him probably, and carried him to sell him to the Ishmaelites. But it was God who sent him to Egypt. Bound. Just like it was God who sent that greater Joseph bound. God is sovereign over the ends. But he is likewise sovereign over the means to those ends. He is sovereign over the end. And I think most Christians get that clearly. Yes, we know all things will work together. That's a precious promise. We know that God works things for good. But what we sometimes are tempted to forget is that God is sovereign over the means to those ends. Let that sink in and it will prick you. It is hard. This is what we see in Genesis 50. Joseph says in Genesis 50, As for you, you meant evil against me. In their heart was nothing but hatred and evil for Joseph. You meant evil, he says. But God meant good. Same word. Those brothers meant evil, but God meant good. And so as we dig into the story of Joseph, in particular where we would begin in chapter 37, that is a terribly violent, distressing chapter. It it may be easy enough for you to read quickly over it and, and just get past that chapter. But if you just think about the trauma, if we want to use that modern, you know, in, in vogue word right now, if you can just imagine the trauma that the 17-year-old boy experiences in the hands, at the hands of his brothers, there is no relief at the bottom of that pit. He hears their plan. 
He sees their hatred. It's a terribly violent and distressing picture. It's not just murder. It's brother murder. And so when we look at the verbs in Genesis 50, verse 20, it will help us to navigate. Meant. God meant it. That's the verb. The verb meant in Hebrew is a word that literally means to weave or to braid. This is the same verb that is used in Genesis 15, verse 6, when it says that Noah believed, so God counted to it to him for righteousness. Noah believed, and so God wove it for righteousness. Noah wasn't righteous. God is righteous. And God counted Noah righteous with God's righteousness. The word is also used later in, when God is giving Moses the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle. There were to be ten curtains of fine twined linen, blue, purple, and scarlet. Images of cherubim were meant to be masterfully and intentionally woven into these curtains in the tabernacle. Guess what? Same word. Woven into the tabernacle. That's meant. It describes the intentionality and the purpose. That's not accidental. It's not just, hey, yeah, let's just weave some threads in here. It's let's weave the pattern, the plan, according to the purpose. Those cherubim, not just the purpose of the cherubim, the images themselves, but the purpose that says, in my, in my holy presence, my holy presence, don't forget, folks, is guarded by cherubim. Remember the garden? There's a purpose on a purpose on a purpose. God is intending something. And so one theologian observes it this way. He says, this is not a verb of accidental occurrence. God just takes whatever he got and he's going to work it out. I'm going to take this mess and I'm just going to work it out. God takes messes and he works them out. Don't get me wrong. But what this is telling us is that God isn't just kind of trying to make the best of a bad situation. God, from the beginning to the end of Joseph's story, is weaving a pattern. He is meaning something. Now, think about for one moment your story. Think about your beginnings. Think about the pits that you have found yourself in. Think about your hell that you have been called to walk through. And do not forget that God means something by it. You may not know what it is. I may not know what it is. But you don't have to know. You just need to know that God does know. It's the beautiful picture of the tapestry and we are on the back side of it. What do we see? Loose ends. That's what we see. But that's not what God is doing. When we get to the other side. Glory. 
the word pictures sovereign God orchestrating every meticulous detail. Every meticulous detail. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Let that sink in as you consider your sinful past. Mm. God's not sitting in heaven wringing his hands saying, Oh my goodness, they're making such a big mess. And God is not sitting in heaven as some maniacal sovereign saying, Yes, I'm going to make them sin. <laughs> no, he is a good and gracious and wise and merciful sovereign who is working all things for the good of those who love him and for his glory in all peoples. So I want to remind you, I'm aiming this in two areas, a greater understanding of God's sovereignty, how he works, and that it would help us to understand our own stories more clearly. When you look at um, Genesis 37, you see this beginning of the story. You see a 17-year-old Joseph... There's an assumption by some that because his father rebukes him, that he, Joseph maybe was arrogant or he was chronically insensitive or he was inconsiderate at best or, or something like that. We're not told that from the text. In fact, we are told that Joseph's father hears and believes. He stores it away. Even though he rebukes Joseph, he stores that away. And by the way, we also see in this chapter that Joseph's dream where the sun and the moon and the stars bow down to him. Eleven stars, by the way. One's missing, right? Hmm, is that Joseph? These stars bowing down, sun and the moon bowing down in Joseph's dreams, it, it was clearly understood, and it's given to us in the text, that those heavenly bodies represent people. And we know that the sons of Jacob represent the world. And so what we see in this chapter is that these heavenly bodies falling down before, that's a picture of people and nations falling down before. So when we encounter that symbolism later in the scriptures, we know what it's talking about. When we see, you know, the idea of the sun and the moon darkened, what might that be talking about? Well, that's talking about a change in government. And that's what Joseph is undergoing here. This is what God is working. He's working a change in government. In the family government of Jacob's house, in the Egyptian government, and in the world. That's what we see. But Joseph's brothers hate him for it. In verse 4, we see that they could not speak peaceably to him. They, they cannot even put on a happy face any longer. They hate him. And they decide this is the time to kill him. And so there's Jacob. Um, they, they take his robe. They strip his robe off of him. They shred it. And they cover it in blood. And it's ironic, isn't it, that Jacob's story also has a cloak covered with uh, something to do with the goat, doesn't it? Joseph's, Joseph's cloak is taken and the goat is taken to deceive Jacob. 
just like Jacob dressed up in his brother's robes and the skin of a goat to deceive his father. And what's the difference? Well, Jacob, uh, jo- uh, Jacob did that righteously to save his father. These brothers do not follow their righteous father here. And they depart and they deceive their father in wickedness. Joseph's dead. We found his cloak. Here it is. And we see that Jacob goes into some kind of despondency. Um, Joseph, when he goes out to meet his brothers, he goes to a place called Dothan. Dothan is an interesting place. This is the place. This is the place where the prophet is able to open up his servant's eyes to see clearly the reality. All they have is envy, bitterness, hatred. And what does that do? It completely blinds them to the reality. They see a rival. Not a brother, not a savior. Sound familiar? Envy, hatred, bitterness. If you can't greet your brother in peace and there is envy and hatred and bitterness, it will destroy you. It will blind you and it will destroy you. Um, Many people believe that these are just Pet sins, private sins that you just need to deal with. We forget that these, these are not just little, little one or two pound sins that we keep with us. The weight of envy and jealousy and hatred will bog you down such where you cannot run a step further. And they throw their brother into the pit. Can you just imagine for a moment Joseph's intense emotions as he cries out in desperation for mercy? And what does he get? None. And Reuben must have been preoccupied. They don't, Reuben does not allow them to kill him just then. And they, for, uh, they think that they're just going to go back and, and they're, they're going to kill him. But then Jude, Judah gets another idea. Judah, in this story, is the scrupulous Pharisee. He's the scrupulous Pharisee that says, well, well guys, he's our brother. We can't kill him. That would be wrong. Let's sell him into slavery. And let's, let's turn a profit on our brother. Sound familiar? And so they lay hands on him and they sell him for a profit. Now they're guilty of man-stealing. A crime in Israel punishable by death. 
when the law is codified. There's something else that the author does in this chapter that's interesting. In chapter 37, if you read that, is, and you'll see that in nowhere in the chapter is God ex- explicitly mentioned. Why? Well, it's a dark, dark time. Can you imagine how Joseph must have felt so alone? He must have felt that God was absent in that pit or on that road down to Egypt. He must have felt that God had abandoned him, perhaps. And yet we know that it is God and that that Joseph came to know that it was God who was working all of these things. Bitter and sweet good and evil, for an ultimate success. I I can only imagine the mockery that the brothers um, displayed toward Joseph. Oh, we're going to bow to you? Beg for mercy, dreamer, right? Who's bowing now, dreamer? And he begs for his life as they sell him into slavery. There's no doubt he had, he had not forgotten the dreams. But what he thought in that moment, you can only imagine. Think about the many so-called coincidences that we see in, this, in chapter 37 and throughout the story of Joseph, really. Jacob happens to send Joseph, whose brothers happen to not be where they're supposed to be, while a man happened to be there, who just so happened to know where Joseph's brothers are. And then when Joseph was to be killed, Reuben happened to be there to save Joseph's life, but just so happened to be gone long enough for Joseph to be sold to the Ishmaelites. Of course, these are not coincidences, are they? No way. And we can see that now when we look at the story of Joseph. But how clearly do you see it when you look at your life? When, you're, when you happen to be thrown down into that pit. The truth is that if any single one of those things did not happen in exactly the way they happened, everyone dies. Think about it for a moment. If not every single one of those things happened in just the way that they happened, everybody dies. Just play that scene out for a moment. Play that storyline out for a moment in your mind. Famine. Death. If Joseph doesn't get to Egypt... If he doesn't interpret Pharaoh's dreams to save the people from the famine, Joseph's family dies. It is, it's really interesting. I mentioned it. Dothan is the place where Joseph is thrown down into the pit. And it's the same place where the prophet would cry out to God for salvation. 
and God would miraculously and immediately intervene with chariots of fire to work salvation for his child. And yet, here is Joseph in Dothan crying out for salvation. And God stays silent. God stays silent. And yet, God is no less working. Sometimes, you know this. I know this. Sometimes, God is silent to your cries, to your prayers, over and over and over. But don't for one second confuse that silence with indifference. God is the sovereign who is working when you see him and when you do not. God is working salvation for Joseph. By violently sending him into slavery. We see the same thing in the New Testament. It's the wise mercy of God to free Peter and Paul and the other disciples miraculously from prison. And it is the loving and merciful wisdom of God that kept John the Baptist there to be beheaded. I don't know, and you don't know how your story will end. Will you be freed like Peter and Paul, or will you be beheaded like John the Baptist? I don't know. You don't know. You don't have to know. You have to know God who knows. One pastor put it this way, God's wise redeeming love is completely compatible with terrible things happening in the lives of those he loves. God's wise redeeming love for you is compatible with terrible disappointments and terrible things happening to you. Get this deep into your bones. Because your life on this side... will be full of pain, of loss, of fire, of trial. I know you know this. I know you've experienced a lot. I I know some of your stories. And I don't know what the rest of your story or mine looks like. But I know that on this side of eternity, this is as close to hell that we will ever get. And it will feel like hell. And God will remain silent 
sometimes. But God will never be indifferent toward you. It may seem often that God is not answering your prayers. That he isn't doing anything in your life. That he is silent. You may feel like Joseph in the bottom of that pit. Betrayed. Rejected. Abandoned. Helpless. Useless. But God is working. He is working in the good, in the sweet. We, we just baptized two babies today. He works in the sweetness of new life. And he works when the time comes and death's door is opened. He works in the sweet and in the bitter, in the good and in the calamity, the evil. He works in the blessing, and he works in the curse. Joseph points us to Christ, but he also points us to Christ's work. And that means that Joseph, in his picture, in his weakness, is a picture of us. Joseph, in his weakness is a picture of us. Just like Christ on the cross is a picture of you deserving death. Sinner deserving death. And just like Joseph, we have a father who loves us, who has clothed us in a robe of righteousness that we did not deserve. And just like Joseph, we have a hope who is Christ, who will not disappoint. And and just like Joseph, before we get to that glorification, we will walk through the valley of shadow. Before we are raised to glory, there is a cross and a grave. There is darkness. When it seems like God is not answering your prayers, remember what He's really doing. He is working, He is weaving a glorious and meticulous story. With your life, with your circumstances, with your weaknesses, with your sin. As you pray, it seems that things can, cannot get any worse. That death is surrounding you on every side. God is answering you in ways... When that happens, God is answering you in ways that you would easily understand if you only knew everything He knows and everything He sees. 
Think about when we look at the story of Joseph. It's so inspiring to us because when we see Joseph in the pit in Dothan, we can also see the glory in Egypt. But Joseph can't. And so when Joseph is in the pit praying for God to spare his life, to get him out of the pit, to send him back to dad, Joseph doesn't realize that if that happens, everybody dies. And so Joseph, what do you think he would pray if he could read Genesis chapter 37 through 50? What do you think his prayer would be? Send me to Egypt, God. And see, this is the thing. It may seem and it may feel like God is just ignoring you. But what he's really doing is he's working for you what you would be praying if you knew the end from the beginning. Praise be to God. He knows how to pray when we do not know what to pray. Every death, every dark night gives way to resurrection. Don't ever forget that, Christian. And so Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph, one Hebrew scholar says this. I'm going to quote it at length. He says, Joseph tells us plainly, you meant evil against me. But the true meaning of these evil acts did not lie under the authority of the perpetrators. God took their evil and turned it to his good. The, listen carefully, the events did not change. The events did not change. This is a mystery. This is a paradox. This will fry your brain if you try to do that math. But listen carefully. The events did not change. Sinful events that those men would be judged for, just like the men who took Jesus to the cross. Sinful events. There's no way we can say not sinful. Man stealing, crucifixion by, uh, of an innocent man. There, the events did not change. But God miraculously turns it to good. God did not miraculously alter Joseph's slavery or imprisonment. He didn't miraculously change that. He made something else happen through it. Joseph really was a slave in Egypt. And Joseph really did become second in command in Egypt. When he became second in command, it didn't negate or undo or change what really was. God doesn't need, let me go back to the quote. God doesn't need to alter events in order to bring about his purposes. God doesn't need to alter events in order to bring about his purposes. His is a much more glorious plan. He takes what others meant for evil... And he brings about good. He takes what you meant for evil and he brings about good. He takes your stupidity, your foolishness, your rebellion. And if you are a child of God, he takes that and he works 
your good and his glory. The curse becomes the cure. Sound familiar? Remember the story of Joseph is just a window that we look through to see Christ. Can you see Christ? Can you see the cross? Can you see when Christ becomes a curse for us? That curse becomes for us the cure. I know, it's almost time, guys. I'm almost done. Our alarms are going off, aren't they? Joseph's sufferings point us. They foreshadowed the Messiah's sufferings of Jesus. Jesus suffered infinitely more than Joseph ever suffered, ever could have imagined suffering. He was not only stri- Jesus was not only stripped of a robe, he was stripped of his father's glory. He suffered and died to save his people, to become sin for us, to bear the weight of our sin. He died so that in him we can die. And as he rises again to new life, we too can rise. There is no grave, there is no glory without a grave. That's not just true for Jesus, that's true for you and for me. Even at the very end, Joseph still did not see the entire picture that God was weaving with his life, with his sufferings. He could not. If Joseph stays in the pit, who stays in the pit with him? Jesus, the Messiah. But he knew that his life was not meaningless in the end, didn't he? How did he know that? Because he persevered and trusted his father. He did not stop believing and he did not stop obeying. He didn't let bitterness and envy take root in his heart when he so easily could have. He believed. He loved. He chose to love his brothers who sold him as a slave. And just like like I described with the tapestry. We on this side will be left seeing nothing but loose ends. Maybe God will give us glimpses, mercies, see glimpses of purpose behind our suffering. And God does that, glimpses. But it rarely um, gives us enough comfort to justify the suffering. It was all worth, oh yeah, no, that, that, that person's death was all worth it because look, this thing happened. It rarely gives that much comfort to us. But we can take comfort in this. That on this side, while we will see loose ends. On the other side is glory. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Each week we are invited to this table and to Jesus, and so you are invited again. This is an altar call, so come, Christian, and welcome to Jesus. You do not have to be left behind. Come, receive bread without money and without price. Come, 
and welcome to Jesus. Church, come. Stand and receive your charge. Your charge is this. Believe in the God of the Scripture who is God all the way up, all the way down, and all the way across. He is God. This is the God who works in the light and in the darkness. He works in the good and in the calamity. He works in the giving and the taking, the sweet and the bitter. Believe the God who works all things for the good of those who love him. Believe the God who works all things for his glory. And let this belief purge your heart of all bitterness, jealousy, envy, and hatred. Believe the God of loving sovereignty and wise mercy. Have faith and get to work. I'm going to pray for us and I'm going to pray for our food. Apologies for being late. Heavenly Father, these truths may come easy enough to our minds, but we must have them set deep in our hearts. So, Father, please let the truth of your loving sovereignty take root in our heart and let it guard us and keep us even when we are in the pit. Let the comfort of your wise mercy saturate every piece of our heart that it would drive out all bitterness and jealousy, envy, and hate. Make us to trust you and keep us faithful. For your glory in Christ Jesus, Lord, we ask that you would bless the food that we are about to receive. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's sing our thanks to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Be with you. <laughs>